Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, Henry Wallace was an Iowan, an accomplished geneticist who hybridized both corn and chickens, an entrepreneur who co-founded Pioneer Hybrid to produce seeds, a company which remains an agricultural behemoth, the third generation of editors of an influential American newspaper, a mystic with a mysterious guru, and a liberal philosopher, according to no less an authority than Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was also at various times Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary of Commerce, Vice President of the United States, and a third-party candidate for President of the United States in the 1948 election. Like America, Henry Wallace contained multitudes. With me today is Ben Steele, author of The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century. Ben Steele is a senior fellow and director of international economics at the Council of Foreign Relations. His previous books have been on the Marshall Plan and on the financial arguments focused upon the Bretton Woods Conference. In this book, we have yet another study examining the central moment of the 20th century, both chronologically as well as in many other ways, but from the extraordinary and idiosyncratic point of view of Henry Wallace. Ben Steele, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me, Al. So, uh, Henry Wallace is, uh, as my Iowa mother would like to say, he's corn-fed in more more ways than one. He is uh, Iowa-born and bred uh, from a family that's devoted to agricultural science and sort of the uh, the great moment of agricultural science and really of agriculture in America. And I think that's absolutely central to understanding him. So could you unpack what that means uh, to be from Iowa at that moment? It, it, it is. Um, uh, Wallace really comes from what you might call agricultural aristocracy. Um, and this explains mm-hmm. his um, um, uh, early rise um, to um, uh, political importance. Um, his grandfather um, created um, a very important farm journal. Uh, called Wallace's Farmer, which was genuinely um, required reading uh, for farmers, not just in in Iowa, but um, throughout the the Midwest. I I guess the the example I might use, which is more contemporary, would be a publication like Barron's in the 1980s for the financial community. It It was a magazine that you really had to read if you were setting out to do any serious farming. Um, it not only gave technical device, uh, advice, um, but it, it, it commented on politics and, and economic and social affairs um, in a, a, a way that was supposed to attach morally um, to the vocation of um, farming. Um, uh, when his fa- grandfather died, his father um, became uh, editor of the publication and later became um, agriculture secretary uh, under um, uh, Harding and uh, Coolidge. Um, so when FDR was looking for an agriculture secretary, Wallace, who didn't have any uh, uh, government experience um, uh, at that point, was a logical person to turn to. He was a genuine expert um, um, in f- farming 
and agricultural science. Um, he certainly had a lot of ideas. Um, some members of FDR's brain trust considered those um, ideas e extremely radical, in some cases too radical. But FDR, as you know, was looking to experiment with everything that was out there in order to get the country out of depression. So, so it, part of this also explains the immense flux in which American politics was uh, for, say, from 1890 to 1932. Um, the Wallaces uh, uh, are Republicans and they're progressives. Very and, proud Republicans uh, and proud Republicans. Very proud Republicans and progressives. And so definitions of ideology and party affiliation, it's like a Brownian swirl of movement. And so people who are proud Republicans because of their support for Abraham Lincoln uh, two generations ago find themselves in FDR's cabinet and in some ways more radical than certainly uh, Democrats yeah. uh, in that cabinet. Some of the, yeah. I mean, I, I suspect, I have to go look, some of the probably most radical members of uh, FDR's cabinet had been a generation ago, had been Republicans of some yeah, kind of Yeah, and stripe. in fact, Wallace uh, himself did not re-register as a Democrat until 1936. <laughs> so after... Paul, and he didn't last long as a Democrat. No, <laughs> he, uh, he joined three parties and, and uh, quit three parties. Leaving yeah. a sort of well, trail let's, let's, of destruction in his wake. <laughs> let's go back to Iowa. Yeah. Um, the uh, I mean, we, just to emphasize this, agricultural newspapers are read by an amazing percentage of people. Uh, they combine uh, sort of the, a science journal with a business journal with a political journal with old farmer farmers almanac and Ben and you know poor Richard's almanac. They're kind of all wrapped up together. This is um, this I just saw with the discussions of the Iowa caucuses, something like 5.5% of Iowans are now actually directly involved in farming. Uh, in 1900, it was a hell of a lot more than that. And nationwide, and they are we're talking about something like over, well, well over 30%. So, you, you know, this yeah. is a and, big chunk of the American economy and society. And they're preternaturally literate compared yeah. to any other agriculture uh, agricultural population and politically active. So this is where that 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 power is coming from. But Wallace, uh, his father is a, I mean, part of this agriculture aristocracy is their involvement with higher education, and his father is a very early faculty member of Iowa State. And charmingly, uh, Henry Wallace is educated partly in botany by none other than George Washington, Washington Carver. Carver. Yeah, really. Could you, could you describe story. that? So, um, uh, Wallace's father encountered um, Carver um, in Ames at, at Iowa State and introduced his son to Carver when his son was four years old. But he, uh, Carver had an indelible impact uh, on Wallace. Um, he really inculcated in him a, a lifetime of fascination um, in uh, plants, and, and botany, um, the science behind it, and also the spirituality behind it, which we, we, we mm -hmm. shouldn't forget when we mm -hmm. consider how Wallace's career progressed. The, uh, and Wallace uh, goes to Iowa State yes. uh, and becomes, with a BA in agriculture, I guess, he becomes a very accomplished, well, I mean, genetics is brand new. I mean, literally yep. 20 years old. Well, he started experimenting uh, with that before he got to college when he was 
Yeah. He's experimenting with, he's, he's cross, he's hybridizing plants. And so his great breakthrough, uh, and what makes him a very wealthy man is hybridizing corn. Um, and this, this was a remarkable development at the time, uh, because the, the science of hybridization really was not widely known. Um, but one of the remarkable characteristics of, of Henry Wallace, which in terms of his background as a scientist was very positive, but in terms of his dealings with human beings was not so positive, was the fact that he never took anything that anybody said, no matter how many people said it, for granted. And the Iowa corn experts um, uh, firmly believed that the very best corn in any dimension was the corn that looked the most beauteous. Um, and <laughs> very, very Aristotelian, I have to say. <laughs> and people used to come for miles around to corn shows in Iowa to hear what these experts thought. And Wallace had nothing but disdain for them because there were, he felt no logic behind what they were saying. After all, the main consumers of corn were not even human beings. They were hogs. And what, the, what the heck did hogs care about how the uh, corn looked? Um, so he set out at a quite young age to start experimenting with hybridization. His mother had introduced him to the um, process with plants when he was very young. Um, and he was very industrious and very meticulous in, in doing this. And it took him many, many years of trial and error before he began um, creating strains of corn that were demonstrably better. Um, in that um, uh, they um, were more hardy um, than the naturally um, growing um, strains and um, more abundant. They, the, the yields were much, much higher. And but three times as high. Yes, yes. The, the astounding, astounding Absolutely. yields. Absolutely. And the, the corn that um, we today um, really comes from Wallace's um, experiments way back then, um, in the 1920s, again, even, even before that, when he was, before he got to college. Um, and uh, later in life, as you know, he started experimenting with chickens. And a lot of the chickens we eat today were the, are the result of Wallace's experiments, which produced um, a breed um, that eats less but lays more eggs. Yeah. And uh, we could get into the, there are so many unintended consequences in Henry Wallace's career, because in many ways, his success at coming up uh, with hybridized corn destroyed the agricultural agricultural world. I was going to say the agricultural, the culture of farming in America. Yep. At least it made it unrecognizable. It also made- uh, It would make it unrecognizable. Absolutely. It also made some of the reforms that he himself was um, pursuing in the 1930s to get farmers to grow less. Um, it made those reforms more difficult to pursue. Um, well, let's talk about that. <laughs> the uh, In many ways, uh, he seems to have moved out of the Republican Party, not just because he found uh, FDR, the New Deal congenial or FDR's campaign congenial. He was persuaded that um, – he was persuaded that Herbert Hoover had yeah, destroyed his father's life. This was a moral issue. Uh, it was, um, and I, I wrote in the margin uh, the idea that somehow 
that Herbert Hoover had done what Calvin Coolidge obviously did. <laughs> and the, uh, the disjunction between, uh, the disjunction also between dairy farmers and cereal farmers is there between Coolidge, who's, they farm cows and they make cheese in Vermont and the Wallaces mm-hmm. who make grain. Well, anyway, this is part of the, the drama, but suffice it to say is that his, uh, Henry Wallace was it the second, the third? Which uh, which one? Henry Wallace. I can't keep them all straight. But Henry Wallace's father, who's Coolidge's secretary Henry of agriculture, leaves him. Yeah. Leaves leaves the uh, administration in disgust and dies shortly thereafter. I think. Yeah. So uh, Wallace sees this as a moral issue, and that's his main drive to joining with FDR. And FDR wants a progressive Republican as part of the cabinet. Yeah. So um, in uh, 1932, um, FDR sends um, his old um, Hyde Park friend, Henry Morgenthau, uh, out to Iowa to, to speak to Wallace, to get his um, ideas on agricultural reform. And uh, um, Morgenthau is a pr- pretty conventional orthodox thinker about just just about everything. Um, he's, um, he's he's not the sharpest tack in the box, and he's quite suspicious of what he considers to be Wallace's more radical ideas. But he is very impressed with Wallace's um, knowledge base and his uh, ability to communicate his arguments about mm-hmm. agricultural reform, and he introduces mm-hmm. him to uh, FDR. And Morgenthau is a gentleman farmer exactly. himself, I believe, yeah. and, and and thinks of himself that way. Um, so he, he joins the administration. Yes. Did yeah. he as well? I mean, who didn't in 1930, apparently, I mean, other than my family? As part of FDR's 100 Days, what are Wallace's – what is Wallace trying to do for agricultural policy um, right. in the New Deal? He's not really sure. He's quite convinced that whatever he does, it should be super radical. Um, so, um, he goes out for a long walk with his, uh, deputy Rex Tugwell and Tugwell comes up with the idea of producing, you know, a sort of omnibus bill, which became the Agricultural Adjustment uh, Act, which would just give Henry Wallace enormous power to decide what's best down the road and implement it, um, uh, with, with, without having to come back to Congress. Um, and this, this passed, um, with very radical legislation very quickly. Um, you know, FDR, of course, was fortunate to have a, a, a democratic uh, Congress. And well, Wallace, um, started experimenting with everything that he could control. Um, his main aims, uh, were to get farmers to grow less, um, which today is not radical at all. Of course, the European Union has pursued that with gusto for for many, many decades. But what was particularly radical about Wallace's agricultural um, policies is that he he not only tried to get farmers to grow less, um, but um, he really compelled them, in many cases, the cotton farmers, to rip up millions of acres of already planted um, uh, cotton, really quite remarkable, and, and, and other crops. And, um, he compelled farmers to slaughter prematurely six million hogs. And the idea was to, to boost the price of 
these commodities. Now, of course, all else being equal, you know, that's what happened. You had less supply, so the price went up. But of course, there was a heck of a lot less product to sell. So really, this radical strategy had no permanent positive impact on farming in America. It was very controversial at the time, even within um, his his party. Um, but FDR was willing to let um, Wallace experiment with everything and anything. Um, FDR's main aim was to stop an insurrection from the farming community. So anything that Wallace could do um, that would even hold out the prospect for improving um, the, the, the lives of these constituents, he, he was going to give Wallace pretty much free reign. Um, Wallace did understand. I, I, did, I, I did note that you did, that FDR's worry about an insurrection, and you know, as everything I know about agricultural policy during the New Deal, I just read in your book. So uh, my ignorance is is vast. Is it was there? Ab- where did this idea of an insurrect, an ag- a farmer's insurrection well, come it, from? It, it, is this yeah, a, fe- a, it, fever, a fever no, dream? In, in 1933, you already had cases, which are where I describe in the book, including back in Iowa, where uh, foreclosure proceedings um, uh, in agricultural country were being disrupted in court by angry farmers who were, were storming the, the courthouses and, and, and shutting down. Um, the proceedings. Um, so there was really um, considerable concern about the prospect for, for mass violence uh, in the agricultural communities. Okay. I was imagining that maybe FDR had read Tale Two Cities too much or something no, like this, that. No, this, this, was, this was this the is... daily news at the time. Mm-hmm. So did it work? I mean, I, I, I read this, you can see the sort of the lineaments of agricultural policy to this yeah. day. Uh, uh, but did it did it work in the 1930s? You, 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 you know, mean, you said you, you didn't know much about uh, agricultural policy in the 30s till you read my, my chapter. Well, I'm, I'm a product of Long Island suburbia, and I could barely distinguish <laughs> animal, vegetable, and mineral. So you can imagine how much research I had to do. Um, so I, you know, I tried not to be too wonky in this um, chapter. Mm-hmm. Lose the readers. Well, feel free yeah. now. This is this is this is this is not econ right. talk, but it is historically thinking. We we goes wonky. Well, I had to go into considerable detail researching um, these policies and the effects of these um, policies, and you know, I I, I went to various um, academic studies, working studies, etc., to see what the result of these policies were, and get away from the popular accounts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what's what really happen and it's right because I, I have to say that my my wife's grandparents until they died uh and you hear this a lot fdr will always vote democrat because fdr saved exactly. the family farm exactly. and, and it's and it's repeated so often that you it's it's a, a very common trope yes. so then you begin to then as a suspicious historian you begin to say right did, did, he, did he really? Did that really right. work? Like so that? I described the enormous complications um, uh, in, in his um, uh, policies, um, how radical they were, the resistance in the farming community, the suffering that was imposed on millions of farm tenants. These are people who 
didn't own farmable work uh, uh, on farms. Um, and I, I had to conclude that um, really none of what Henry Wallace did was um, necessary or successful, except um, transfer payments to farmers. And really, you could have gotten all the benefit that was uh, uh, achieved over um, FDR's two terms in the farming communities in the uh, Midwest just by writing these people massive checks, pretty much like the Trump and Biden administrations did during the pandemic. Um, of course, those were controversial, um, uh, but they did have the um, uh, effect of um, uh, keeping demand up in a period where the economy wasn't functioning properly. And in fact, um, transfers to farmers over FDR's two terms in total were utterly enormous. I mean, really astounding numbers. Um, I calculated there were about $55 billion, which is well over a trillion dollars in terms of, of um, uh, current um, dollars. So it's not surprising that farmers on the whole, at least farm owners, did benefit from Henry Wallace's um, uh, tenure, but at utterly enormous cost to the, to the rest of the uh, country. Um, so these, these, these policies um, really don't deserve um, much credit. Um, the policy that does deserve the most credit in terms of helping the farm community was just the loosening of monetary policy, um, which um, uh, um, naturally increased the ability of American farmers to sell their um, produce abroad um, and um, loosened credit. Um, and that had absolutely nothing to do with Wallace or his department, obviously. Um, so again, um, if we could go back and do that period over again, the most sensible strategy would have been to support demand, write big checks to farmers, and second, loosen monetary policy, which um, uh, we did in several instances over the course of the 1930s and was quite successful broadly, not just in the farm community. Let's go on to an episode that I of, of Wallace's life that I could not believe that I was reading all of these things. Uh, it was like uh, John Buchan, author of The 39 Steps, uh, Sax Romer, author of the Fu Manchu stories, and maybe H.P. Lovecraft got together and really drunk on a bottle of whiskey and maybe some ayahuasca. And uh, then they created this story, except this story is true. So could you describe Nicholas we, we don't have time to get into the details of this, but the story of Nicholas Rorick, um, Agni Yoga, and the New Country, yeah. uh, which is, which I have to say, buckle your seatbelts, listeners, because this is, this is insane. Yeah, uh, uh, the story of um, Wallace's relationship with Rorick was supposed to be a short section of my chapter on his time as agriculture secretary, and it turned out to be on its own by far the longest chapter, not only in the book, but the longest chapter I've ever written. It's over 20,000 words, which is sort of like a, a book in itself. I was astounded at what yeah. I found. So the basic story is that um, Wallace is introduced uh, to the art and spiritual thought of this um, uh, white Russian emigre named Nicholas Rarek, 
1927, he goes to New York and visits the um, museum that's been created in his name on the Upper West Side. There are still remnants, remnants, uh, very paltry remnants of this museum on the Upper East Side, West Side today. Um, uh, it's a wonderful free museum. I encourage people to visit if you can see his uh, rare ex- uh, art. And Wallace becomes transfixed before a Tibetan prayer mat in the, the, the lobby. He says that he... He stands in front of it for yeah, hours. Apparently, the, the staff get um, very concerned. And the uh, um, vice president, Francis Grant, is called to make sure he's not unwell. And, and Wallace explains he's just experiencing vibrations, as he calls it. Um, uh, so Wallace um, uh, becomes an absolute devotee of uh, Rarick, his art, his spirituality, his uh, theosophical um, uh, thought. And uh, as you discover reading on in the chapter, um, this Rarick movement actually becomes a a sort of cult for those who are involved in it, um, with all the intrigue that typically goes on within cults. Fast forward to... um, uh, 1934, Wallace is now agriculture secretary. Um, he knows that Rarick wants to go back to um, Central Asia um, and pursue his mission of recreating the mythical Shambhala in um, Central Asia. Um, so this would be, in effect, a new theocratic state that would take territory um, from uh, Manchuria, um, which is nominally under Chinese sovereignty, but now under Japanese uh, control. Um, Siberia, obviously part of the Soviet Union. Um, Mongolia, maybe even eventually spreading to um, uh, Tibet. Um, Wallace understands that Rarick is trying to create a new political um, uh, entity, um, but you know, he doesn't reveal this with me. But he creates um, the cover of a seed foraging expedition. Uh, Rarick is um, uh, sent with two American botanists to find um, drought-resistant seeds in Central Asia, which could, in principle, help um, the Dust Bowl. None of these seeds um, were ever used um, in the United States. <laughs> um, and so I tell the story over 20,000 words, which is really utterly remarkable, um, thanks to the archival finds I, I made particularly in, in, in Russia. Tell the story of how this expedition unfolded um, and how it um, collapsed and created um, a, a, a huge um, uh, scandal, first within the administration, and almost brought on World War II many years early. You know, this is one of the... How how so? This was one of the most dangerous regions in the world at the time. Um, You had a number of major powers jostling um, for for sovereignty and influence in this area, in particular Japan, the Soviet Union, and China. Um, to a lesser extent, Britain is as well, particularly given its um, uh, influence in um, uh, Tibet. And as I describe in the book, um, uh, 
Soviet intelligence becomes very concerned about his activities. Japanese intelligence becomes very concerned about his activities. Russian fascist in Harbin, in Manchuria, um, uh, uh, begin, begin resisting what they think Rarick is um, uh, trying to do. He just makes enemies everywhere. Um, he, he, he is skilled at telling people what they want to hear, yes. but if you do that enough times, then everyone figures you're on everyone else's Precisely. side. Um, Precisely. Yeah. And at different points in, in uh, Rarick's um, uh, career, he's staunchly anti-Bolshevik. Then as you read in the chapter during the 20s, he briefly becomes um, pro-Bolshevik because he thinks he's going to be able to, to get um, uh, support uh, from Stalin's regime for his initiative by convincing the Soviets that Buddhism and communism have a lot in common. And if the Soviets would back him, uh, they would have significant um, geostrategic influence in um, Central Asia. Mm-hmm. That never pans out. And then he becomes um, uh, uh, anti-Bolshevik again himself. Now, this whole episode, without going heavily into the details, explains some things about Wallace that had never been explained before adequately in previous biographies. For example, we know that Wallace ends his career very pro-Soviet, um, but in 1933, he staunchly opposed U.S. diplomatic recognition of the Soviet Union. And nobody who chronicled Wallace had ever explained that before. Where did it come from? You know, he argued to Roosevelt that these were godless people and that um, any sort of um, political recognition of the Soviet Union or even increased trade links would be devastating for <laughs> um, the American society. It's really quite remarkable. Where did this come from? His association with Rarick. Rarick um, uh, urged Wallace to use all his powers within the administration to prevent U.S. recognition of the Soviet Union. Of course, Wallace failed, but it wasn't from lack of effort. And we and we have here the spectacle of a geneticist um, uh a self-proclaimed rationalist who is operating under the influence, or he believes he's being uh, instructed by Rarick thanks to their connection with the spirit world. So um, uh, Rarick's wife in particular, uh, Helena Rarick, claims to um, receive um, uh, true wisdom, cosmic wisdom, um, from the uh, long-dead ancient Mahatmas um, of the Himalayas. These were um, beings that supposedly once existed in corporeal form. Um, they've long since been gone from the earth, but they um, have uh, evolved to a higher plane and can communicate to the chosen uh, in, a, in a way that's called clairaudience. It's basically through the ether. So she, in effect, um, tells the disciples that she is getting um, commands from God, and she passes them on to Henry Wallace with instructions um, to carry out God's will. And Henry Wallace writes many letters back and forth uh, with the the, the Rorik 
works, as you, you saw, they're extremely slavish and obsequious. Um, and he makes clear that he understands that he must follow the will of God, as expressed by the um, Rerics, and he will do everything in his power, including um, sacrificing his job in the U.S. government in order to carry out this will. Except that he he doesn't. He does not. And and in fact, he drops them very abruptly. Um, so how does that so, happen? Um, uh, summer of um, nineteen thirty-five, everything blows up. Um, an American um, journalist based in Peking, John Powell, um, writes an article that is just a classic um, NKGB propaganda piece, uh, meaning it has elements of real truth in it um, uh, about this um, uh, mission that um, Rerick's um, leading, uh, that Rerick has these revolutionary um, aims, that there are con- there are conflicts within the um, um, expedition between the American botanists and the um, uh, Ricks, but it's also full of full of um, false allegations. For example, that Rerick's son was a former czarist officer, and so on. Rerick's son was fifteen when he left the Soviet Union. So there are a lot of things that are absolutely false in there. It was clearly a planted. Um, piece by Soviet intelligence. But this eventually hits first, it hits the Chicago Tribune and then the New York Times, and it just blows up in Wallace's face. And Wallace basically disowns the entire expedition, claims that he never knew that Rarick had any agenda beyond seed foraging. I mean, this is a demonstrable lie. And not only hangs him out to dry but um, goes on the offensive and destroys the man's life. He goes to the um, uh, head of the IRS and um, forwards um, documentation to him suggesting that um, Rarick was involved in tax evasion going back to the 1920s. Without going into the details here, this is clearly a manufactured um, case against Rarick, um, but it succeeds. Um, Rarick is given an enormous tax bill of almost $50,000, which he can't repay. He's never able to get back into the United States where he doesn't have legal residency. The Soviet Union won't take him back. And so he and his wife, Helena, um, uh, uh, live out the rest of their days in, in India and die in um, India. Um, and this is very much because of Henry Wallace's vindictiveness. And mendacity, really and, uh, and mendacity known to everyone around him who knew that he was writing letter after there are hundreds of letters that he ended up yeah. writing. He in, wrote over two hundred um, letters to uh, members of the uh, Rarick Museum mm-hmm. inner circle, including, of course, the Rarricks himself. And these letters, which came to be known as the Guru letters, um, they uh, some a subset of them eventually public, and as I describe in the book, at several times in Wallace's career, they would um, uh, emerge, causing him him and his political party of the day great embarrassment. Well, let's talk about that. The first episode, which is 1940, right after FDR has decided that 
he will, I guess, be bipartisan. He will get Henry Wallace as a former Republican and as a, a man who's able to get the Midwestern vote. He'll bring him on. He'll replace John Nance Garner, Texas conservative Democrat, uh, who now loathes FDR uh, more than any other person in America, probably. Um, and uh, he'll replace Garner with Henry right. Wallace, and it'll be win, win, win. Right. Uh, but then the letters come and out. the letters come out. And um, so Sam Rosenman, um, who is a longtime Roosevelt associate, going back to uh, Roosevelt's days as governor in, in New York, um, gets hit with these uh, this big pile of, of guru letters, uh, these slavish letters um, to Nicholas and Helena and other um, members of the museum inner circle. Uh, he determines that um, uh, at least some of them appear to be um, real. Wallace um, uh, sort of acknowledges privately that the ones that are handwritten are his, but he says the ones that are typewritten are not. They were his. Um, I found a lot of the missing letters in, in Moscow. They were all his. He was lying. Um and um, so these have apparently been given um, to the FDR um, campaign copies of these letters uh, by a Republican operative. Um, and the originals are supposedly being held in a, a, a bank vault. Um, and a, um, a Pulitzer Prize winning um, journalist is about to publish uh, articles about this. And Wallace threatens him, says, everybody knows this is um, uh, false. Um, you would be dis disgracing your profession and your, your paper if you were to, to publish them. Um, you shouldn't be bringing religion into the campaign, particularly given who your, your um, publisher is. The publisher is Jewish, and, and um, uh, Wallace implies that he would be bringing disgrace upon the, the Jewish race if you were to inject religion into this um, campaign. Um, but ultimately, these letters don't come out. They don't publicly in 1940 because um, uh, FDR um, uh, threatens through intermediaries to publish um, uh, details about um, Wendell Wilkie's affair with Arita uh, 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 Van Doren. Um, and so there appears to be a, a sort of tacit agreement between the two camps um, not to reveal the details of either the guru letters or Wilkie's uh, affair. So Wallace then performs, I think, one of his best bits of public service. Uh, it's a short, short episode in the book, and we give it compared to the the whole chapter on the the Rurik's. Um but the he as vice president elect goes to Mexico, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which I think is an extraordinary episode. I mean, he says, "I want to go to Mexico. I want to give a speech. I've been studying Spanish for three yeah. years." And he does it, and he drives in his Plymouth with a he, you know, uh, and he looks at all the fields along the way. And what I really love is is then he he there's a direct link between that trip and the Green Revolution. Yeah, no, it's I mean he, he, go, he I mean he does his. Utterly remarkable. He is, he basically, because of that trip, he gets, is it the, the Guggenheims? The, Rock or the Rockefellers? Rockefeller to, yeah. the, to fund the, the farm where Norman Borlaug will come up with, uh, uh, improved wheat. Yeah. So, and, he, uh, 
launch the queen? He, he goes for a very short period in late November into early December. Um, part of it is having meetings with government officials. Um, they're planning for for war. Um, uh, um, uh, they, uh, you know, FDR pretty much knows it's coming. He wants to promote hemispheric solidarity. So, you know, they discuss, for example, um, how the United States could get privileged access to um, Mexican metals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But he also visits um, uh, farms and, and small farming communities uh, around Mexico. And when he comes back, he contacts the Rockefeller Foundation and urges them um, to uh, pursue this initiative um, to increase yields in Mexican <clears throat> agriculture, which are extremely low by American standards. And without getting into the details, this is an enormous success. Uh, Wallace not, not only revolutionizes Mexican agriculture, but world agriculture. And this may be one of his greatest, if not greatest, contributions to mankind. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's 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 extraordinary. Uh, he also has a very good trip as vice president to Latin yeah. America. He's very good. At yes, that. Um, and he's um, rapturously he's excellent received. public diplomat. Yeah, yeah. Hundreds of thousands. And people like his Iowa accent. They like, yeah, he speaks in Spanish on these yeah. um, uh, trips. You know, his Spanish is apparently you know fairly rudimentary, but um, uh, it's functional. Uh, and pe- mm-hmm. the people really appreciate the fact that he's making this effort to speak to them mm-hmm. in uh, their language, and he's talking about issues that they care about, like um, uh, like agriculture, like labor conditions. Um, and in some cases, I describe on the visit, he's clearly more popular than the, the local politicians. Um, in some places, hundreds of thousands turn out to, to, to welcome. Remarkable and success. yet by by remarkable success, but by late 1943, I think at the latest, early 1944, certainly, FDR has decided that he's going to dump Wallace from the pretty much in, in the 1944. As, as you know, so why, why does he why does he decide to do that? What what I mean, Wallace has been a success in many ways. Uh, what turns FDR against well, his, him? His main role um, uh, as vice president. Um, is um, as chairman of this new Bureau of Economic Warfare. Now, FDR, as you know, sets up um, uh, this enormously complicated overlapping bureaucracy for everything in government. He likes to have competition among his cabinet members. And he creates an alphabet soup of agencies responsible for war procurement. Um, as he as he had done during the New exactly. Deal, exactly. Um, precise the same the same pol- the same method, different policy, different exactly. objectives, same methods. Um, but this yeah. one is really wild uh, because um, you know there <laughs> there are billions and billions of dollars um, uh, at, at stake, and Wallace um, gets into very public feuds first and foremost with Jesse Jones, who is the um, extremely powerful. Um, Commerce Secretary. They come from op- opposite wings of the party and have totally different uh, objectives um, in terms of uh, war procurement. 
procurement, very different uh, ideology. And he gets into a direct conflict with the Secretary of State, Cordell Hall. And um, FDR gets called in routinely um, over the course of uh, um, 1941, 42, into 43 to adjudicate in these um, conflicts, but never comes out and settles them himself. Um, he gets increasingly annoyed at uh, Wallace, who he thinks is not sacrificing for larger objectives, uh, and eventually uh, empowers Jimmy Burns um, uh, to uh, first separate these two, Jesse Jones, um, uh, Wallace, um, punishes both of them by taking away elements of their fiefdom. But for Jesse Jones still remains Commerce Secretary, so he still has a, um, uh, a power base, um, whereas Wallace um, loses everything. The Bureau of Econ uh, Economic Warfare is disbanded. Uh, FDR sets up um, a, a new replica uh, agency under uh, Leo Crowley. But um, Roosevelt, fascinatingly, um, maintains his affection for Wallace. And as you know, after Wallace gets dumped from the ticket in, in 44, he replaces um, Jesse Jones with Wallace at Commerce, which creates more um, fireworks in Washington. The complexities of working for FDR. He wants you to fight amongst yourselves, but not too yeah. much, just enough. Yeah. Um, the Faithfully, Wallace goes to on a trip to Siberia and China, uh, probably to get him out of Washington, uh, lay down some lay down the groundwork for moving him out of the the ticket. But we won't get into that right now. But and we won't get into the entire details of the trip. But I think we should briefly, as we set up Wallace's fascination, fateful fascination with the Soviet Union, we should set up first. What Wallace thinks he sees in Siberia, briefly. Right. Just very briefly how he gets there in March of 44. He yeah. asks um, Roosevelt if he can go to, to, to Russia. And by Russia, he means <laughs> Moscow. And there's no way in hell that FDR is going to allow um, Henry Wallace to get anywhere near Joseph Stalin. Um, now, at that point, FDR had wanted Wallace to go to China as a personal emissary. Uh, with a very limited um, uh, remit. Um, and then uh, FDR initially just says, no, you're not, you're not going to Russia. You've got to be kidding me, Henry. They're going to be shooting at you for being too far to the, the left. But then he has this epiphany that sending Wallace to Siberia could be very useful on multiple dimensions. First of all, um, Wallace's delegation can do some useful spy work um, find out uh, um, about um, uh, Russia's gold mining um, capacity, uh, which would indicate Russia's ability to pay um, in the future for um, uh, American goods. Um, and second, it'll get them out of the, the country um, uh, before the um, uh, convention and allow time to determine who should replace him uh, on the ticket. So he goes off to Siberia for four weeks. And the, it's a remarkable story. I first, as you know, tell it through his eyes entirely. Um, he writes a book called Soviet Asia Mission uh, about his trip. He co-authors it 
with um, uh, uh, an American NKGB journalist source, which is really quite remarkable. And it's just a glowing book about the accomplishments of the Bolsheviks in, in, um, uh, in Asia. Uh, I, I was imagining if... Um if publishers and readers would take more risks, I imagined after reading that, um, that the, all the pages that describe the Siberia uh, journey, you could above a, a line down the middle of the page, you could have your first account. Yeah. And then below it, you could have what Wallace sees. And then below it, what actually is going As on. As you can imagine, it was be, a challenging chapter to write. It's a very challenging, exactly. Because first, you know, I do want to tell the story through his his eyes, right? But Wallace is an appalling writer, first of all. He's deathly boring. Um, He never uses three words where nine words would do. Um, And he just, it's not credible. I mean, you just, you read about all these amazing stops and the people he met and the talent he discovers in, in Siberia and how happy and healthy these people um, are. If you go on for too long, you just lose the, the reader because the, the, the reader is saying, you know, enough of this crap already. But um, what you do disc- find in his account are a number of things that hint to you that something else is going on. You know, uh, for example, he describes these episodes where he escapes from his minders and what, what, what happens during those episodes. And you can tell that he doesn't realize um, that, <laughs> um, you know, a vast Potemkin continent is being created for him. And that is, in fact, what happens. So after I tell the story as briefly as possible through his hide, I repeat the story. I tell the, the true story based on Soviet governmental uh, archival material, what the Soviets set out to construct for him, how they hid all the labor camps, etc., um, how they um, uh, used um, performers who were political prisoners from um, Moscow to impress um, uh, Wallace with the cultural accomplishments in the region, how they created fake shops for him to see what great abundance there was, etc., etc., etc. And I also had accounts, actual accounts of prisoners um, uh, at the time um, who eventually wrote up uh, their experiences with the um, vice president um, on his trip. And it's just really jaw-dropping. I mean, for four weeks, Wallace is traveling through this tempting continent created in the midst of World War II. This was very expensive just to fool him. And he hardly ever speaks to someone uh, who isn't a member of the Russian Secret right. Service. He thinks, he thinks that almost all of them um, are local, legitimate local um, uh, politicians. But even in the few cases where he identifies people as NKVD, he def- um, talks about them as the, the nicest, sweetest, um, most inoffensive people you'd ever want to meet. They're just patriots. Um, so this, in many ways, it's a metaphor, not really a metaphor, it's how Wallace set about understanding the Soviet Union. Um, this is kind of, he takes this, well, we'll see, he takes this at least as far forward as 1952. Right. 
this is the way that he's going to see the sure. Soviet Union. But of course, uh, as you can tell from there's a there's a determined there's a de- there's also as you point out there's a couple points where even in his awful prose there he can see that there's you know something is peeking out from exactly. beneath the carpet. There's some, but he doesn't want to believe right. it. It's also very clear he's not. He's going to use his enormous focus to willingly believe something exactly. else. Um, So he sees what he wants to see, and I have evidence of that. For example, there was a a U.S. military attaché accompanying him who described um, an instance in which the vice president's car had been stopped um, and prisoners were uh, herded across the the road. Wallace never describes this. Um, Wallace had asked his um, uh, minders if he could see a prison camp, and they told him there was nothing to see. Um, so Wallace saw things like this, um, but never wrote about it. So he clearly did never wanted to register it. And as I talk about in the, the book, Wallace is um, just one of a long line of American pilgrims to the Soviet Union going back to the early 20th century who did see exactly what they wanted to see in Bolshevik society. Really quite amazing. He returns. Uh, I think we'll get back to this towards the end of the the conversation. But he is very adroit. Well, FDR is so complicated. Um, FDR doesn't even know sometimes what FDR wants, and he seems unable to clearly state himself even to his confidants about what FDR wants. But somehow, by hook or by crook, uh, Harry Truman becomes vice president of the United States. Um, we'll go back to circulate. Uh, we'll go back to that in just a second. Um, obviously, then uh, FDR uh, dies of a, an embolism uh, in uh, in April of 1945. Uh, Harry Truman suddenly finds there's a fantastic uh, photograph that you include in the book of Harry Truman, I, I think, and Wallace at FDR's funeral. And yeah. Wallace must have been thinking that should be me. Did he, he actually articulate that in his in his diary? No. Did he ever? Express that, I mean, or to anyone else? Uh, I, I did not um, find that, no. Um, he did, I, I did find um, uh, uh, things that he had said and written disparaging of Truman, but never mm-hmm. uh, did I find anything that said uh, that should have been my job. But you know that he knows that. I do love that photograph that you um, referenced because you've got. Wallace standing on Truman's left and Jimmy Burns, who becomes Secretary of State, which is the post that um, Wallace wants if he can't have the presidency, on Truman's right. So it's a great Mm -hmm. metaphorical photograph and it sort of encapsulates Wallace's time in the brief time in the Truman administration. It's Jimmy Burns always underestimated by people who shortly find themselves on the floor missing their lower <laughs> intestines. Um, uh, Henry Wallace being one of them, I, I, I guess. Uh, the um, As Secretary of Commerce uh, under Harry Truman, he has, I guess, a bid to be one of the worst cabinet officials Ever. in the history of any presidency. Would you would you think that, that – would he be in the running, maybe in the shortlist? That's fair. And again, the, what – I mean, the most as, as 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 measured by how much headaches he gives the president. Yes, as as head of the well, cabinet. Well, in, in, in terms of his um, official responsibilities, he's a complete failure. As you know, he writes this book called 60 Million Jobs," 
um, in which he argues basically that the American economy is going to collapse and we're going to go back into another Great Depression unless we create 60 million full-time jobs by um, uh, 1950 and meet a number of other uh, targets. Uh, this never happens. Um, you know, I go through all the numbers. We, in fact, create 48.5 million jobs um, by 1950, which, according to Henry Wallace, should have produced utter catastrophe in the United States. Instead, the, the economy basically booms and booms throughout the um, 1950s, um, really remarkably successful. And the big problems that we have um, in uh, 1946, a lot of them derive from Henry Wallace's interventions. He basically provokes mass strikes, not intending to do it, but making public statements, for example, that the auto manufacturers should pay immediate 25% wage increases and not raise any prices. Of course, and he claims to have scientific <laughs> basis um, uh, for this. This naturally encourages the, um, the, 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 the unions um, to, to, to strike. Um, and we have over 4 million strikers over the course of 1946. And the one thing that I discovered that um, I, I wasn't expecting, you know, looking for where Henry Wallace got his ideas, um, was that all his primary advisors uh, at Commerce were either Soviet agents or Soviet assets. Um, I mean, it, I, for reader uh, listeners who are thinking this is going to sound like we're off on a McCarthy McCarthyite uh, binge, um, you know, uh, it's not. <laughs> because These it's, are I, this not is, my this judgments. Is actually, this, this is what led to McCarthyism is the, the discovery that these people were actually sure. there. Um, and that, and then the fantasy that there must be even more of them. There were, there are far too many as, a, as, as it, as it turned out, there are far too many of them at the, in these reach, upper reaches of power in the, uh, in uh, the United States yeah, government. Yeah. So we, we have the evidence from the Soviet, uh, archives. Um, uh, Wallace's primary economic advisor, who also becomes one of his uh, campaign advisors in 1948, is a man named Harry Magnoff, who is a longtime member of the CPUSA. He is a Soviet agent. He's widely referenced in, um, Soviet, um, telegrams and Soviet, Soviet, um, uh, documents. And fascinatingly enough, you have FBI um, surveillance um, transcripts. Um, all these people um, uh, under Wallace have their phones tapped. Um, none of these people get prosecuted because the phone taps are legally inadmissible. But it does give you a day-by-day, blow-by-blow uh, account of what these people are saying about how they are going to manipulate their boss. And to what end? And they, and they do. Then they, and it's not hard, as as others have discovered already. Um, if if you go with the grain of the wood, you can manipulate Henry Wallace. And part of this is going to be on on the mark. Uh, well, first of all, nuclear weapons. That's a big. One. And then yeah. the Marshall and the and the Marshall Plan. Yeah. So, um, uh, really, Wallace has no no interest in in commerce and the U.S. economy at this point. What he's interested in is in the future of U.S.-Soviet relations, and basically he goes on the warpath um, in 1946 against official Truman administration foreign policy, and he's constantly undermining Jimmy Burns, for example, who's over um, in Europe for um, long 
stretches trying to negotiate a uh, post-war uh, settlement. Wallace is making speech after speech, um, undermining his positions. Um, first and foremost, on um, atomic policy, basically blaming um, the um, uh, United States for um, creating an environment in which the um, Soviet Union must defend itself against American um, uh, aggression. Um, it turns out that uh, a lot of his um, positions, his his own descriptions of U.S. policy have nothing to do with U.S. policy. They're taken directly from Pravda. Discovered. I was shocked to find this um, myself. But Truman, as you know, he endures this with enormous patience for a long period of, uh, of time because he's convinced that he, he needs Henry Wallace in the tent to pr- protect his left flank. But finally, in September of 1946, after Jimmy Burns threatens to resign, um, uh, Truman decides you know, this can't go on. And tells Wallace he has to go. And so Wallace. Yeah. What does he? What does Truman say to his mother-in-law that Henry Wallace is the most complicated man I've ever come across? Uh, I think, think I thought, he used uh, what's that a, effect? A, a, a more negative. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, like but, but yes, he did. Go. It, it could have, but it, it make a good epigraph for the book. Uh, so he he runs for president. In some ways, that's the least interesting part of his life. Uh, he gets, what, 2.5% of the vote in 1948? Uh, 2.4%. Just a little less than Strom Thurmond? Yeah, he becomes... Strom right. Thurman. so he becomes in the end, remarkably, I mean, he, he, he wants to win the presidency, but he becomes the fourth party candidate behind segregationist Strom Thurmond. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complete failure. But nonetheless, what he does and says over the course of the campaign is fascinating. Um, yeah, it is. And what what do you think, what did his, I, I mean, in many ways, his campaign is certainly a template for radical politics over the next 30 years, maybe even to this day. Uh, but what do you think that, what do you think he actually managed to achieve in, in terms of his campaign? Well, certainly nothing in terms of um, uh, influencing American um, public opinion, which um, on foreign policy, particularly policy towards the Soviet Union, throughout the campaign was moving progressively to the right. Um, So the the more he talked, the more the public turned against him um, and against progressives who hung on in the Democratic Party and the the ones who left the party to to go to this new Wallace um, progressive party. Um, As you know, uh, however, from the story, the machinery of this new progressive party was taken over entirely by the CPUSA. So this was a, a yes. basically a wholly owned uh, subsidiary. And Wallace never comes to understand that the rapturous response he gets at various rallies around the country is completely orchestrated by the, the, the communist element that's controlling yeah, we don't have time to get into all the details, but at the time, he's been hired uh, by, is it Michael Strange? Michael Strange, uh, who he becomes editor of Michael the Strait, Republic. Michael Strait, who's the, for Michael Strait, who's the publisher, mm-hmm. and 
incredibly enough, listeners, this is one of the many incredible things. Uh, Michael Strait is one of the the Cambridge Five. Uh, he's been recruited by NKVD officers along with Burgess, McLean, well, Philby, Karen Cross, and, and he's Blunt. He's not one of those. Well, not one of them, but he's called call the Cambridge Six. He's a, he, but he was he was recruited by Anthony Blunt, I believe. Yeah, uh, in the 1930s, yeah. when 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 yeah. he was a, a student in um, Britain. By the time we and we he, get to 1945, he's um, he's put that behind. And, and by nineteen and by nineteen forty eight, he's becoming an anti. He's very much, I'd say, an anti communist progressive, and very much so by like nineteen fifty fifty two. Well, you know, we so have this, this a- bizarre circumstance in which um, uh, Wallace, who um, was still, I believe, a, a contributing editor during the the, the campaign. Uh, is running for for president, and the, the the new republic, which had been under his leadership, is arguing against him, uh, and completely yeah. supporting Truman. So really remarkable. Yeah. Um, and yet, in 1952, Henry Wallace votes for Dwight David Eisenhower. So is is does Henry Wallace is he like the first maybe not the first crop of neoconservative but he's got to be like the second the in second 52, crop. Fifty um, two, he he's um, um, he, he's favorably disposed in, in several ways to both Stevenson and um, um, uh, Eisenhower. He doesn't he doesn't, Fries, he, yeah. he doesn't no he doesn't come in out fifty six fifty six he comes out outright endorsing Eisenhower. Um, I would definitely not call him a, a, a neoconservative. No, I wouldn't. But it, I, it, it did amuse me to write that in right, the margin. But, but he it, convinces it, himself that Eisenhower is the peace candidate. Um, okay. And that is what he uses as the basis for his um, uh, endorsement. Um, I argue um, in that sort of um, epilogue uh, chapter, that if you look at Wallace's evolution after he loses in 48. He becomes increasingly embittered about um, what he views as um, uh, the, the, the way communists, both in the United States and in Moscow, betrayed him. And he's looking for an opportunity to get back at them. And for him, that's the Korean War in 1950. It gives him a pretext for breaking um, with um, the communist um, entirely breaking with his own party. He um, resigns from the progressive party. He says, when my country and the United Nations take a position in time of war, I'm on the side of my country and the United Nations. Of course, the, why did the U, UN Security Council um, uh, bless um, uh, uh, the um, U.S. participation in the Korean War because the Soviets had walked out of the Security Council. There just wasn't a, a U.N. endorsement. But um, Wallace used that as a sort of fig leaf for his um, break with um, the left movement. Uh, and although he would, throughout the 1950s from time to time, promote still semi-utopian um, global policies, um, going forward. For the most part, he became quite realistic about geopolitics um, and quite astute in many cases. For example, I talk about how he argued that um, this the um, Soviet agenda and during the Korean War was to get the United States and China into military conflict. 
we didn't have any documentary evidence of that at the time, but it did come out many decades later, and he was spot on. Um, so once he abandoned his romantic fascination um, with the, the great Soviet experiment in economic democracy, as he, he called it, um, he became much more astute and, and um, rational. Still, he would maintain um, uh, implausibly that somehow if FDR had survived, we still could have avoided the Cold War, but he never explained how that could have been. Um, speaking of what-ifs, what which are like kettle-cooked potato chips, um, there you eat five and then you eat 50, and they're delicious, but they're not really the point of uh, cuisine, and neither are what-ifs the point of history. Uh, yet, nonetheless, people... Certain uh, Oliver Stone uh, and other progressives have indulged in lots of what ifs about if Henry Wallace had not had been president instead of Harry Truman, that there would have been no Cold War, that there would have been peace, etc. Those all seem rather implausible. And yet, of course, uh, uh, the American century looks different when you look from over Henry Wallace's shoulder. Um, It's an interesting view. Yeah, I'm, I'm in one um, aspect. Of course, I disagree with um, Oliver Stone entirely. The, the notion that there would have been even um, Henry Wallace acknowledged um, in his retirement um, that um, there would have been a Cold War and he would have lost an election in 1948 had he become president in 1945. Um, uh, that's very, very clear from the Soviet documentation, particularly the documentation on what they thought of Henry Wallace and how they used um, Henry Wallace and manipulated Henry Wallace and towards what aims. So what I argue in the book is that if Henry Wallace had become president, there would still have been a Cold War, but we would have um, joined the fight late, um, by which point the Soviets would have... Um, uh, spread their um, influence and domination into places like Hokkaido, the entire Korean um, uh, peninsula, um, Turkey, northern Iran, Greece, most likely, and most consequentially, western Germany, I believe. Which, yeah, all of Germany. Yeah, would, would, and, and Austria, too, probably. Um, oh, yes, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. But where I agree with um, Oliver's uh, stone, um, is that individuals do matter in history. And this was really a very pivotal moment in um, uh, not just American history, but um, post-war world history, um, uh, the, the late 1940s. Um, and Henry Wallace came within a whisker of becoming president of the United States, and he would have pursued very different policies. There would have been no Truman Doctrine. There would have been no Marshall Plan. There would have been no policy of containment. There would have been no West Germany. We can go on and on um, from there. No NATO. NATO. Oh, we should have got, I mean, the it, EU yeah. was a product of the Marshall the EU, Plan. We yeah. can go on and on. So the world would be very different. So in this regard, I agree with Oliver Stone. <laughs> People, individuals yeah. do matter. We are not just the, the, the forces of... Um, um, historical wins. 
dialectical materialism. Um, the uh, We're way over time, but I have to ask you a question about sources. Uh, you referred even in our conversation, people, uh, careful listeners might have heard that you referred to finding the uh, full, se- full sets of the guru letters, quote unquote, in Moscow. Well, this is the, what, there, there's a rare museum the, in, in um, Moscow and they have um, uh, digitized um, documents which are still um, uh, accessible. Um, and those turned out to be the uh, utterly invaluable. Uh, of course, on the on the official side, um, there are the um, uh, uh, Russian government foreign policy uh, ar- archives, ABUPRF, and uh, what's called RGASP. Um, and at least up until the time of the um, Ukraine invasion, um, those uh, archives were still open and accessible by um, Western researchers. So. I'm fortunate I got this material while it was still available to me. I could not write the book today. Yeah. Um, just one final question. Um, being a biographer is an odd, can be an odd experience. You've written uh, two wonderful books before, but they weren't about, they're about multiple personalities. Uh, you had to spend a lot of time with Henry Wallace. Did you find that eventually hard? Um, did you do you find him as mystifying as as much as Harry Truman did? I, I absolutely loved it. I was in, engrossed in it. Um, as you know, my previous book had been um, uh, historical mark, uh, narrative on the Marshall Plan. There were obviously multiple lead characters there, so it wasn't biographical. But if you told me I had to write a biography of George Marshall, I'd be miserable. Not because George Marshall wasn't a great man, but great men don't interest me. I'm interested in complicated people, real people like you and me who have deep flaws as well as we yeah, like George, to think George, great virtues. George Marshall's just too straight, too straight to stick. I I mean, mean, he's to, just in so many um, dimensions, uh, you know, without being overly facetious, a perfect human being who, um, you know, he had his flaws, of course, but he set out to remedy them. And just in, in remade his whole temperament. It's really what a jerk. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Whereas Henry Wallace, <laughs> as you, as you see, was an utterly fascinating human being who had multiple sides um, to him. He accomplished great things in this world um, and almost brought about some terrible ones. Um, I um, opine. Uh, in the opening chapter that if he were alive today, he might be diagnosed with Asperger's. You know, I think he had terrible difficulty um, um, with social situations. He could not detect duplicity, didn't understand people's motivations and and aims. But he was an absolute genius when it came to the the study of, of, of things, plants, um, uh, anything to do with um, uh, uh, genetic science. He was really a quite remarkable figure. Well, my guest today has been Ben Steele. He's the author of The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century. Ben Steele, thank you for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 